We're in week 15 of the story. Uh, if you have not been a part of our church or would like to take this journey with us, we have copies of the story, chronologically arranged version of the scripture, and our small groups have been studying that this semester as we go through the entire Bible. This week we find ourselves studying God's messengers, uh, the prophets, and we're going to be studying them for the next couple weeks. Have you noticed that there are more and more warning signs everywhere you turn, warning labels on every hand, and some of them are They seem to be really unnecessary. We live in a very litigious society, and there's an organization in Michigan that is an anti-lawsuit organization, and they keep up with all of the unnecessary warning labels as a way to show the impact of this litigation against businesses. Uh, And on their website, they have various examples of some unnecessary warnings. And one of them, they had a picture of a tractor and a warning label attached to the steering wheel of that tractor. And the warning label said, caution, avoid death. Now, that's an all-encompassing warning label. That's That's good advice. You know, it's always good to avoid death. And then they had one that was a picture of a stroller that had a warning label that said, warning, Remove infant before folding stroller for storage. Thanks for the heads up. And then they had a warning label that was attached to a Batman costume and it said, Warning, cape does not enable user to fly. Everybody knows Batman doesn't fly. Superman's cape is what enables you to fly. And I've got a chainsaw in my garage and associated on the box and in the instruction manual and with the chainsaw is this warning, do not attempt to stop chain with hands. I found on the internet some warning signs that would fall in the category of unnecessary. This one seemed really unnecessary to me. It's a picture we're going to show you. Do not sit on fence. Now, to me, that sign's not necessary. It looks like the image of the fence would be enough warning for you not to sit on the fence. But this is actually, if there is somebody that sits on that fence, that's the kind of thing you film and say, these are idiots. So the the sign is not necessary. And then there's one, I don't get this, in the middle of nowhere, a sign that says, caution, this sign has sharp edges. I mean, what's the point? I mean, I, I get it. There's nothing else on the side. Do not touch the edges of this sign. Well, thank you, but okay. And then my favorite is touching wires causes instant death, $200 fine. (laughs) If death doesn't get you, our $200 fine will. A lot of warnings that don't seem that necessary, but we all know that there are things in our life and times in our life when we definitely need to be warned, and if we don't heed the warning signs, they ultimately lead to devastating consequences. There's a book entitled Over the Edge, Death in the Grand Canyon. It's probably not a real uplifting read because it chronicles all of the deaths that have happened over the years in the area of the Grand Canyon. More than 700 people have died in that area since the 1870s. And the author was tracking how they died, some of them by plane crash, some of them by rafting accident, some of them by people who got too close to the edge and have fallen over. And tragically and ironically, every one of them that got 
got too close to the edge and fell over, avoided and ignored the warning signs all the way to the edge. I mean, it's happened even recently. Just last year, in 2012, an 18-year-old girl wanted to get her picture taken by a sign that said, Stay away. And she walked out, leaned up against that sign for the photograph, and the ground gave away underneath her in the sign, and she fell to her death. Sometimes warning signs are not frivolous, but... There are so many of them in our lives and we're inundated by so many of them that we overlook them and we stop paying attention. And I think that's what happens when we read the scripture, especially as we've read through the Old Testament and we've come to the place that is known for the prophets and and we've seen the, the, the details of the lives of people that follow God and we've seen the different ways that God has chosen to reveal himself and he's chosen to speak and in many of those cases he has provided warning signs along the way. He's positioned prophets and people along the way to say to them, stay away from this area. Out of love and grace, he would say to them, don't go down this road. In 2 Chronicles 36, 15, it says, And Jehovah, the God of their forefathers, sent to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, and they despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of Jehovah arose against his people, till there was no remedy." It said that God would rise up early sending his prophets or his messengers to warn the people. When it says he rose up early, it didn't mean that he set his alarm clock and he got up early that day. It meant before calamity struck, God was lovingly warning them before there was devastation, before sin took root, before the full weight of its consequences came down upon them, God would send a loving rebuke through his prophets and say, you need to make some changes. The prophets were known as messengers or seers. Sometimes they were called watchmen. Most of the time in the Old Testament, when you see them delivering a warning, uh, a message from God, they would go and hear from the Lord and they would come back and personally deliver this message to his people. It would be like, you need to turn around. If you keep going down this path, it's not going to end well for your life, for your family, for the nation of Israel. So we're going to look at some different prophets. Many of them are familiar to you, the Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, but we'll talk about some in the next couple weeks that may be more obscure, you're less familiar with. But today, I want you to look with me to 1 Kings chapter 16. Last week, we spent a large amount of our time talking about how the nation of Israel was divided. Division came into the kingdom. The tribes were split. Ten tribes went to the north and formed the northern tribe called Israel. Two were in the south, the tribe of Benjamin and Judah. Judah formed the southern kingdom, which was known as Judah. Now, I'm I just curious, pop quiz, anybody name, can you name the first king of the northern kingdom? It's not Rehoboam, so it means it must be Jeroboam. Rehoboam was the southern king. He was the son of Solomon. And so there was this division in the two, the nation of Israel split. And Jeroboam is afraid Because the temple is still in Jerusalem, and that's where everybody's going to worship on their pilgrimages. And he's afraid if the people keep going to Jerusalem to worship, that their heart and loyalties and affections are going to be turned back to the house of David. And they're going to start worshiping uh, in Jerusalem and loving on Rehoboam as their king. So in order to protect his turf, his insecurity and his ego led him to create these idols. And he said, Israel, here are your idols. Here are the gods that brought you up out of Egypt. 
And so the people that followed him turned to idolatry. And you read throughout the scriptures and different kings come and different kings go. But from that moment on, idolatry becomes more and more prevalent in the culture until you get to King Ahab and it goes to a whole nother level. In 1 Kings 16, about verse 29, it reads, In the 38th year of Asa, who was king and the southern king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of the northern kingdom, Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, which was standard idolatry, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. He was an evil king that took idolatry to a whole nother level. Part of the problem was his wife. She wasn't a Jezebel. She was the Jezebel. She is the woman that every Jezebel joke or reference started from. She was the princess of the Sidonians and she came on the scene and wanted to build an altar for her God, the God of Baal, which was a weather God, specifically the God of rain. And her and Ahab turned the hearts of the people towards this weather god named Baal. So she has all the prophets of the Lord killed, and God eventually has enough. And one of the remaining prophets that she hadn't killed because she couldn't get her hands on was Elijah. And he goes to give Ahab a message. Now you have to understand, in the Old Testament, when God goes to give a message to a wayward people, it's normally not a warm, fuzzy message. And in this case, it's not either. First Kings 17 and 1 Elijah says to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will neither be dew nor rain in the next few years, except that my word, it's going to be a drought. But not only is it going to be dry because it won't rain, it's going to be so dry, the grass will not even have dew on it when you wake up in the morning. And they're going to know who God is after this. One of the things you'll see as you study through the prophets is there's this reoccurring theme. And it's not just the theme of the prophets. It's the theme of the entire scripture, especially as we've read up to this point. The reoccurring theme God is speaking and addressing is the reoccurring sin in his people's lives. It's the number one problem in scripture, idolatry. Two, uh, the first two of the Ten Commandments deal with idolatry. There are more than a thousand verses in the Bible that speak to idolatry. It's one of the four commandments of the ten that has death penalty attached to it because God takes idolatry seriously. Why? Why is he so concerned? Why is it such a big deal? As we've journeyed through the story, we've learned that the intent of God's story is to bring Him glory. The intent of your life, the intent of Him developing a nation called Israel, was that His relationship with that nation would reveal His glory to other nations and draw them into relationship with Him. In the same way, you and I are to reflect and mirror the glory of Jesus to draw our world into relationship with Him. And when our hearts and affections and the glory is given to a another God, we are not fulfilling our purpose as his followers. We are reflecting an impure image of God and we are robbing him of the glory that belongs 
to him. That's why it's such a big deal. He will not share his glory. So you read a ton about idolatry through the Old Testament, specifically in the prophets. But we tend to skip over it because it doesn't seem all that relevant to us. It doesn't seem like idolatry is that big a problem, especially in our day and age. And I know you don't have statues carved out in your house. And I know that you're probably not bowing down to a golden image every night before you go to bed. I don't think most of our friends are either. Uh, That's probably not a temptation in our lives. And it doesn't seem to relate to us. But let me ask you a question. Have our hearts really changed that much? Or is it just that our idols, they're there, but they look different? If you travel much of the world... Or if you go to large cities that have a large immigrant population and you go into those particular parts of a large city, you will often see businesses arranged around a primary idol. You'll smell the incense burning in their shops. And if you've been into many homes like that, you will notice the incense burning and there will be a, a, the, the chairs of their home will be arranged around this graven image, this golden image of the primary idol they have chosen to worship. That sounds a little primitive to us until you go into our houses and to our family rooms and notice how every chair and sitting area is arranged around a fireplace mantle where there is a flat screen TV attached to the, attached to the wall. Are our idols really different? Maybe they're there, they just look different and we don't see them as idols. The question is, where do you put your hope? What holds the seat of glory in your heart? For some of us, we're looking for someone or something other than God to fill that seat of glory, to fill that position. Maybe it's entertainment. You come home from a long day at work and you turn on the TV to worship. You don't call it worship. You're you're looking for some comfort. You're trying to get some peace. It's a little escapism, but maybe it is worship. Or maybe you look for your spouse or some relationship to complete you. Instead of looking for God to complete you, this person is expected to complete you. Or maybe it's money. You say, if I had enough money, I would really then have security. If I had enough money, I would then be satisfied. But what you're asking money to do is something it's not possible for it to do. It's something that only God can do. Or if you're looking for your career to identify you, and you know you're a child of God and that's all well and good, but your real fulfillment, your real, your real joy comes out of the titles behind your name or whether or not you got the corner office or there's certain a nameplate uh, on, on your desk, and, and, and that's what's fulfilling you. Our idols are as real and maybe more dangerous because they are more difficult for us to identify identify. So let's spend the next few moments walking through a grid of questions that will help us honestly identify the idols in our hearts. Now remember, a prophet's responsibility is to help us recognize the reality of idolatry by giving us warning signs. So let's try to look at some of those warning signs today. Now, One of the best grids that we could look through came from a Puritan preacher from the 1600s named David Clarkson, and he had a series of questions for his parishioners that he asked them to help them identify, because it's not statues carved with our hands. So what is a modern-day idol? In 1600s, the questions are still relevant today. I've reworded the vocabulary a little bit so that they reflect our modern-day language, but let me ask them to you. Number one, what disappoints you the most? 
Maybe your career, maybe your financial status, maybe your sex life, maybe it's your family or your marriage. What are you most disappointed with? Whatever you're disappointed with the most points to something in your life that you have placed hope in that has failed you. Instead of putting our hope in God, our hope is often placed in things that will never be able to fulfill us, and we live with disappointment because they can't live up to our expectations. Now, listen, I understand disappointment is a natural part of life, and there are moments in life, seasons of life, that we're utterly devastated just because we live life. But I'm referring to that one thing. That misplaced hope in your life that you keep looking to to bring joy, to bring fulfillment, and it keeps letting you down, but you keep going back there for hope and you continue to be disappointed. Maybe another way to rephrase question number one is, what do you complain about the most? Because what you complain about is a way of revealing something that you put your hope in that has not met your expectation. Here's another question, number two. What do you sacrifice your time and money for? That's how you know what your God really is. The stewardship lesson today, money flows effortlessly to that which is its God. Maybe it's a person or a job or a home or a car. I mean, what are you willing to sacrifice for the most? Where your treasure is, the Bible says, that's where your heart's going to be. If you truly want to know who or what you worship, Look at your budget or the actuals of where you spend your time and your money. It reveals the gods of our heart. Question number three, what do you worry about? What scares you? When you think, if I lost this, or if I lost that, or if I lost this relationship or person, life would no longer be worth living. It reveals the who or the what that we worship. Number four, where do you go when you get hurt? And I think this is really big. Where do you go when life is hard to look for comfort? Where do you, do you come home after a long day and open up the refrigerator and there's some comfort food? The very fact that we have a name for that kind of food called comfort food says that we look for that kind of food as a way of escape in our life. And there's some degree of hope that we place there. Or maybe you get in a fight with your spouse and you feel rejected. And so in your rejection, you enter the pagan temple of a pornographic website to find some kind of comfort. Or maybe you turn on the television after a hard day of, of, of where life has gone poorly for you and instead of engaging with the family you channel surf and you just want to go numb and not think about things and where we go to find comfort reveals where we put our hope it's an honest moment in our life that reveals whether or not God is where we run to with our problems our challenges our pain and our suffering or there are other elements in our life that we look to to find escape Uh, Just imagine with me, this mom had her first child, a baby boy. They adore each other. She cries his first day at kindergarten, but she entrusts him into the hands of of a kindergarten teacher, and he comes home every day, and he's in love with this kindergarten teacher. She's a beautiful woman, young lady. And uh, she's kind and nice, and this little kindergarten boy cannot quit talking about his kindergarten teacher to the point that mom is wondering if the kindergarten teacher is becoming more important in his life than mom. So she goes up to volunteer after a few weeks of school, and they're out on the playground standing beside each other watching the kids, and the little boy falls down in the gravel and hurts his knee severely. Somebody helps him up, and he takes off running towards the two women standing at the top of the hill, and it's a moment of truth. 
Because who he goes to in this moment of brokenness really reveals where his heart and his allegiance and his comfort really comes to. And he runs for his mother. And what we do in that moment really tells us who is our God. First and primarily, where do we turn in the hurts and the pains of life? If we turn to something else, it very well could be an idol in our life. Question number five, what makes you mad? I mean, what gets you angry? If your team loses and it ruins your whole week and nobody wants to be around you, what does that tell you? You got issues. Or maybe, maybe someone disrespects you and it makes you so angry because you've made getting other people's respect a God in your life. Or maybe... Here's question number six. What brings you the most joy? What makes you laugh? What makes you happy? And you say, well, pastor, that's, that's not a bad thing. And that's where this gets a little challenging because most of the time what brings us joy is a gift from God. The problem is, is when we become more infatuated with the gift than we are in love with the giver and we replace roles there and we, we fall in love with the gift, then it becomes an idol in our life. We replace him and the gift takes the seat of glory In our hearts. And the last question, number seven, whose applause do you long for? Where do you look for approval? Maybe it's a boss, a spouse, a parent, a friend, or maybe it's a child. Who are you living for? Whose applause are you waiting to get before you can be completed? They are the people that sit on the throne of your heart. Ultimately, an idol is anything or anyone other than God that takes the passion and the value and the hope and the glory that takes the commitment of your life. So an idol then is really like a cheap substitute for God. Now I'm guessing I'm not the only guy, older guy in this room that still loves kids' cereals. Now some of you men may not admit it, but women, if your man won't admit it, and you know he likes kids' cereals, help him acknowledge that today. We still like kids' cereals. It's hard to beat a good bowl of Frosted Flakes. Yesterday, I had two bowls of Frosted Flakes for lunch. That was my lunch. And I, my kids, I don't know why. I mean, they're just, they, they miss out. I mean, the Frosted Flakes gets to the bottom and it's all crunched up and the sugar is all at the bottom. They throw it away. That's the best part. I go digging through the trash to pour that little bit out. That's the best part of the Frosted Flakes. But Frosted Flakes are one-upped in my book by Captain Crunch. And then even better than that is Lucky Charms because you can just pick out the marshmallows. But even better than that is Cocoa Pebbles because you can drink the milk after and it's sugary and chocolate. But my all-time favorite is Honey Nut Cheerios. I love Honey Nut Cheerios, and I grew up with it because it was the only non-fiber cereal in my grandparents' home. So I acquired a taste for Honey Nut Cheerios. I love Honey Nut Cheerios. I still, I guess my passion for Honey Nut Cheerios has grown over the years, but this Honey Nut Cheerios has caused an issue in my family. Haley and I probably need counseling for the Honey Nut Cheerios issue. 
Because especially early in our marriage, Honey Nut Cheerios are expensive. All name brand cereals are expensive. And so Haley figured it would save money on our budget to buy the cheap imitations of the real thing. And so, uh, and so we had this little argument and everything went back to normal and she kept buying the boxed Honey Nut Cheerios, the big economy versions, which is what I, I, I you know, I like, I eat a lot of Honey Nut Cheerios. And so uh, all is well until she decided to start putting our cereal in these plastic containers, you know, just bringing them home and dumping it out. She, she loves to throw things away so she can throw the boxes and the trash away and it's supposed to keep the cereal more fresh. And I'm flexible. I can go with that. I can eat Honey Nut Cheerios out of a plastic container, but they didn't taste right. <laughs> something, something was wrong, and I couldn't really put my finger on it. These Honey Nut Cheerios taste funny, and I really don't know what it is. And I would say something like that out loud, and she'd just be quiet and keep walking. And, and I, I grew accustomed to the taste. I thought, well, I guess this is the new recipe for Honey Nut Cheerios. And I still loved them, but it wasn't the same. And I thought maybe my taste buds are changing. And one day I was in Target walking down the cereal aisle and I came across this blasphemous product called Malto Mills Honey Nut Scooters. They look like Honey Nut Cheerios, but they don't taste like Honey Nut Cheerios. And I realized what happened. Haley had switched on me in the plastic container and replaced my real Honey Nut Cheerios with Malto Mills Honey Nut Scooters. That's, that, that's just a dumb name for a dumb cereal. And they don't even come in a box. They come in a dog food bag. That ought to, that ought to tell you something. I got used to it, but it wasn't the same. Now, here's what I think we do. I think we're surrounded in our culture and we're force-fed cheap substitutes for God. We don't think a lot about it because we're so used to it. We really don't even actually notice anymore that we get our hope and our pleasure from these other things and still go to church and worship God on Sunday and we don't see any... If it was a statue, you know, we could figure this is not right. But when we get our identity and, and our security wrapped up in this thing, you know, uh, but we don't notice it because it's culturally acceptable and it's so easy to do and it makes it really hard to deal with in our life it makes it hard to identify these idols but once every now and again in our life this thing that we have chased to bring us fulfillment doesn't work and we start asking the question this can't be all there is this chase of this career and the corporate ladder and acquiring resources and education and all of the things that I thought were going to bring me hope or this relationship there has to be more it's because we've settled for something to fulfill us that is a cheap substitute of the real thing. Only God can satisfy. Only God can fulfill our hope. Only God deserves the position of glory in our lives. And we live with this wanting for more when we settle for cheap substitutes. And God addressed the issue of cheap substitutes of idolatry through the prophets. He speaks to the people again and again, warning them about where this is leading and what's going to come. And he says to Ahab through Elijah, the drought's coming, you've been warned. It's not going to rain or even dew be on the ground. 
And this is where you have to understand the story. The reason I made an emphasis of Baal being a weather god, predominantly a god of rain. All of the people were putting their hope in the god of rain. They were worshiping the god of rain. So God says, I'm going to send you a drought. I'm going to show you who the god of rain is. So don't be surprised in our lives when there is a drought in our life that matches up with something that becomes an equal to God in our hearts. Let me say that again. Don't be surprised when there is a drought in an area of your life that matches up with something that has become an equal to God on the throne of your heart because God is not going to bless His primary competition in your life. God bless my career. Help me get that promotion. But if your identity is in the career, He's not going to bless the primary competition. Remember that because the opposite is true. When we put God in His rightful place and we don't share His glory with anything else, we shouldn't be surprised to look up one day and realize the rain starts falling. When you seek first His kingdom, all these other things are added to us. And there are examples I've found through pastoring. There'll be a young man or a young woman that is desiring a spouse and they're, they're getting up in years and the pressure is hitting them and there's all this pressure from family. And, and somewhere along the way they realize Jesus completes me, not a man or a woman. And, 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 and they begin to turn their hearts and pursuits after God. And, and sooner or later after they do that, I've watched time and again as a spouse becomes a gift from God when it stops being the pursuit of their life. I can see it in other illustrations in my own life when I have stayed away from my unhealthy pursuit or I've shifted my striving away from this, even ministry, I've shifted it to the Lord. It's in those moments when He takes the rightful place that He begins to bless and the drought is over and the rain starts to come. Many times... God is not on the throne of our hearts and things are out of order. But when He gets to His rightful place, to the seat of glory, to the primary commitment of our passions and energies and resources, things start aligning. So Elijah says, there's going to be a drought and he sets up this grudge match between Jehovah and all of the false gods, 1 Kings 18, 19, now summon the people from over, all over Israel to meet on Mount Carmel and bring 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal is God, follow Him. Listen to this carefully. But the people said nothing. Why didn't they say anything? Because they wanted both. If they would have wanted God, they would have said, we choose God. If they would have wanted Baal, they would have said, we choose Baal. They said nothing because they want both. And I think that's where a lot of us are. It's not that we don't want God in our lives. We just want God and something else. We want God plus something else. We want Him to share His position of glory in our lives. And God doesn't share His glory with anything. So He says in this moment, you're going to have to choose where is your commitment and where does your priority lie the people said nothing and Elijah went on verse 25 he said to the prophets of Baal choose one of the bulls and prepare it first since there are so many of you call on the name of the of your God uh, but do not light the fire so they took the bull given them and prepared it 
Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's in deep thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. Elijah had the spiritual gift of cynicism. Verse 28. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. What a tragic scene that they tried to get their attention of their false God. They literally bled for their God. They bled hoping their God would ultimately satisfy them. And we look at that and say, man, that's tragic. That's ridiculous. How primitive is that that these people would bleed for their idol?" But we bleed for hours. Some of us are so driven in our addictions that we've destroyed our lives, sacrificing everything to that idol. If sexual pleasure is an idol of your life, you've probably wrecked a relationship or on the verge of a family being destroyed as your family bleeds for that idol. We bleed for work and we bleed for entertainment and we miss time with our kids and those relationships suffer because we bleed for our gods. It's finally Elijah's turn and he has a trench dug around the altar and puts wood on the altar and has them dump a bunch of water, gallons and gallons until the trench is full of water. And they've been chanting and pleading and cutting, but Elijah steps up without chanting or bleeding or cutting and he just prays. Verse 36, at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. He's not saying, do this to promote me. Don't do this so that my name will have renown. Lord, do this for you. Do this for your name's sake. Bring glory to your name. Pull the hearts of the people back to you. It was all about the glory of God. Verse 39, Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And here again, the story is about the glory of God. What's helped me understand the idea of idolatry more than anything is when I realized that idolatry is not just offensive to God, It is hurtful to God. It breaks his heart. I don't have time this morning to go through the prophet Hosea, but most of us are familiar with his story. God tells him in order to enact a prophecy, to pursue a love relationship with the prostitute, to marry her, and to make Gomer the prostitute his wife. He does. But she's unfaithful to Hosea. She goes back to her old life. She goes back to her sin. And God tells Hosea, pursue her. Because her unfaithfulness to you is like Israel's unfaithfulness to me. But your loving husband forgiving her brokenness and infidelity and towards you, I, I, I want that to be a picture of my heart towards Israel. And Hosea goes downtown and sees Gomer falling all over another man trying to lure him into the chambers of prostitution. And what does Hosea do? God says, 
buy her back. He pays for her again. And there's this amazing picture of grace coupled with this story of idolatry that shows to us that when our heart's affections are trying to share God's glory with something else, He's not just offended by it. He's hurt by it. It's like we have an affair on Him. It's like we, we've committed spiritual adultery and He's trying to get our attention. Today, if, you're, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you're away from God, Let me challenge you. I believe he's pursuing you today just like Hosea pursued Goma. Even when she really didn't deserve it, her affections were somewhere else. And God said, I love you enough, I'm going to keep chasing you. I believe he's pursuing some of us today who really don't deserve it, but he hadn't given up on us. We may have given up on him, but he hasn't given up on us. There are others of us who have been serving God for years and we would never carry around a graven image in our purse or put it on our desk. But if our heart was revealed today, something in our life is competing for affection. And God wants to get our attention today. He wants you to know, I'm not just offended by it, I'm broken hearted over it. And I want you back. And if you keep committing this spiritual affair with whatever this thing is, I'm going to keep pursuing you. Because one day you're going to have one of those moments where you're going to realize this doesn't satisfy. I know God shouldn't have waited patiently for me, but he did. I'm going home. I'm getting this right. I want you to stand with me, if you will, all over this place. And I'm going to ask the prayer team this morning if... They will make themselves available today for prayer. I haven't utilized the prayer team over the last several weeks because of some personal and private introspection that we were doing. And I'm going to make room for both today. If you need God to do a miracle in your life, God's word to us through song was a reminder that God is able. You may be on the mat today and the ref is about to strike the 10 count. But in this moment, he's going to come through for you. He is able. Or maybe you need grace because of sin and you've been running from God or you've never known Him and you need to come home today. These people are standing ready in a gracious way, not a judgmental way, but in a gracious way to say welcome home and to help you pray. If you're a believer that just needs to spend some quiet time with God, if you come to the front and you just want to kneel and be left alone, if we see you kneeling around these front seats or at this altar area, we know we're going to leave you alone between you and God. But if you want us to pray with you, come approach one of these prayer team members and let us agree with you that God is able to unseat whatever idol has taken your heart That He is able to forgive every sin, deliver every addiction. Whatever the miracle you need is, be reminded He is able. If you need to come to the altar today, even as I speak the blessing over you today, I want you to come. Father, will you bless them and keep them? Will you make your face shine down upon them? Will you be gracious to them? Turn your countenance their direction, your favor their way, Lord. 
and give them peace. God, bring us to the place of total surrender. A heart that refuses to share your glory with anything. We know you will not bless your competition in our life. But as we align our life around you, would you let favor and blessing and confirmation flow? Let this be a moment of life change in all of our hearts. In Jesus' name. And John and Danny, you're going to keep the environment worshipful. The altars are open. God bless you.